0: Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We are broadcasting from the beautiful island of Antigua. Sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, Brother Nathan, and thank those who are listening to the program. Appreciate so much allowing us to come into your home. And again, this is an interactive program. We are not just here to talk to you, but we want to talk with you. If you have a question that you would like answered from a biblical worldview, if you are concerned about something that the Bible says, maybe you're concerned about what the church is teaching, give us a call. No matter how you are joining us, we are honored that you have taken time out of your Tuesday evening schedule to join us on That's Truth. I'll give you the contact information again throughout the program, but we're going to jump into some questions that have come in since last week's episode. Uh, Pastor, the first question is a WhatsApp question from Nigeria What was the forbidden fruit that Adam and Eve ate?
1: I think we all wish we knew what it was But to be very honest with you uh, We just told it's a tree of good and evil uh, Not as good and evil There's no physical or uh, botanical features that are given in the scriptures Uh, So when we begin to speculate as to what fruit it was We just enter the realm of the mystical, and and uh, we don't want to get into speculation. We do know that the ho- whole matter about the tree was a tree designed to test man's obedience, his submission to God, and for man to exercise uh, dependent trust on God and what God has said. Uh, so um, we know it's a little tree as well, because the Bible said they took of the fruit and they did eat. And those are the basic fundamental. Ideas that are given in the scriptures, we are never told specifically what the tree is supposed to be, and I think that uh, what God has done in this uh, incident is that He has explained to us how man came into the mess in which he found it, we find ourselves today. But it doesn't end with just telling man about how we got into the mess. It also tells us uh, in Scripture how we can get out of the situation, and that God has provided a way that we can be forgiven and pardoned, we can be restored to relationship with Him and we can have eternal life through Jesus Christ, O Lord, by putting our faith and trust in His finished work. So to answer your question, there's no biblical uh, indication as to what specific tree it was, but we do know that it was a real tree, and uh, also in the book of Revelation, that same tree of life is also mentioned once again in the book of Revelation. But let's not go beyond what scriptures reveal, let's get into the realm of speculation, let's be very clear what it's all about, it's about telling us how we got into the mess, And also the whole entire scripture after that explains how God brings us out of this situation to restore relationship.
0: Another question coming from Nigeria. How do I overcome my fears? Well, uh, that's a difficult question
1: to answer in terms of I'm not sure what type of fears you're talking about. Um, Fear of man, You fear of death. Um, It depends on what type of fear you're talking about. But uh, clearly, uh, when it comes to um, the believer, uh, we ought not to fear man, we ought to fear God. And the way to develop uh, and deal with the matter of fear is to develop a, a deep, intimate trust with a relation with God. I think once we establish that deep, intimate trust with God... Uh, it then becomes possible for us to be empowered so that we don't have to have fear. I know in Africa, and I don't know every place in Africa, I I know um, we've got sent teams to Africa on missions trips, and I do know that there's a lot of demonic activity there. Uh, Some of it, when I hear of what really happened, uh, when they were there, and stories that were told by members within the church, the African church, I was so appalled to think that uh, we're living in an enlightened age where the Bible is so freely preached. I could not believe the depth of the problem of uh, demons and and spirits within the African nations. And I'm not sure from Nigeria whether or not this is true. Nigeria is supposed to be a Christian nation. I know you have a a big Muslim section as well. But uh, again, I don't know what specific fear you're talking about. But the way to deal with fear... It says, perfect love casts out prayer, and that perfect love has to do with one's relationship with God. I think if you know where you're going and you're sure that you're saved, uh, an actual fact, uh, death itself is just an entrance door to eternity. So that in itself should give one a sense of confidence and hope, and should help to alleviate any kind of fear one may have.
0: Another question that has come in, How do I meditate as a Christian?
1: Well, uh, you follow the biblical model, and I would suggest to you to take a concordance and perhaps look up the word meditate in the book of Psalms, and you'll see that uh, David frequently, when he's on his bed, uh, he's meditating. And what David meditates on is not to free his mind, to make the mind blank. David fills his mind with great thoughts of God's works in the past, especially in his dealing with his miracles, uh, God's character in terms of his attributes, his holiness, uh, his omniscience, uh, his omnipotence, his omnicompetence. Uh, I think those are the things that you need. But it's actually taking either passage of Scripture or some great, theological thought about God and meditating and reflecting upon it. And of course, in your mind, you're praying and asking God to give you an understanding. But meditation is not what, uh, Christian meditation is not what you find in these different New Age movements and these different Eastern religious movements, which are designed to cause you to empty your mind. And somehow by emptying your mind, you open your mind to be controlled by external powers In my judgment, you're exposing your mind to demonic powers, but the Bible nowhere ever encourages a believer to empty his mind. Uh, Always we have to use our minds that God has given to us, and we must meditate upon truth. That's the important thing, and that truth is found in God's Word and of course you can actually look on creation itself the natural creation there's so much in natural creation that when you reflect on even a flower the intricacy of a flower the delicacy of it the symmetry of it the the, the, the intelligence that it takes just to make it I mean it's just astounding or even look at your eyes for one moment contemplate the eye or even the ear with uh, the stirrups and the, and the uh, you know those different things in the, the membrane uh, the complexity of it and how it operates with the ear molecules vibrating. When you begin to think about this, the engineering feat that, that was in, that is involved in that uh, leads you to a sense that you're dealing with a creator of infinite intelligence. So I would suggest that, that that's how you do. Either the word, many different things in nature that reflect upon God, but never the idea of empty your mind or never using some kind of illegal drug in order to get you in a state of consciousness where you don't have any control.
0: What about a legal drug?
1: Well, even a, a legal drug to get you uh, out of uh, conscious control uh, is not something the Bible would support. It's always... A, I, look, I can't emphasize too much. And uh, this is where we need to understand what Christianity is about. Christianity is about truth. Truth can only appeal to the mind and it's appealed to the mind, and the mind grasps that truth, it affects your thinking and affects your emotions. So the way to change your emotions, you can't massage emotions or somehow inject emotions or play with emotions to, to get them into a state where you're calm. You, you do that by reflective thinking, and as you grasp the truth and the excitement of the truth, understand the truth, then your mind begins to change, your thinking begins to change, and your emotions begin to change. That's why the Bible said, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's the answer to your emotional disturbance when you have it. The mind has to be transformed. But it cannot be transformed through uh, meditating upon God's Word and, and also a right relationship with, with God.
0: You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, a live interactive call-in program on every Tuesday evening. If you've just tuned in, we are looking forward to your interaction and there's a number of ways that you can communicate with us. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. If you would rather call and be put live on the air, we would love for you to call 268 462 7420. Or you can send in your question on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, and you can click on the Facebook Live video feed. And right there on your device, you can listen to the program, watch behind the scenes, and you can comment your questions. Maybe you don't have a question, but you have a topic that you would like discussed on a future episode Please, please, please give us your ideas as to what topics would be beneficial for you in your Christian life. Maybe you don't even claim to be a believer, don't claim to be a Christian, but you have a topic that you think would be beneficial uh, for yourself or for others. Maybe you have a concern about what is being taught in the church or what the Bible says or doesn't say. Contact us here at the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Pastor we have another question that has come in and thank you to the individuals who have been sending in these questions how do I grow in my prayer life
1: well I I would suggest to you that number one you've got to be committed to prayer and understand that prayer is work and when I say work it it, it requires discipline Um, I would think one of the most important uh, things that would help you is that you need to have a place that you're going to pray if you're just going to Um, Try to develop a prayer life Without just an ad hoc It's not going to work So I would recommend That you have a specific place At a specific time That you devote That particular time to pray Even if it is Every Tuesday Or every Wednesday uh, At a particular time Maybe for 15 or 20 minutes Always start off uh, With a small hunk of whatever you want to do. The great disappointment happens with us when we, we decide we want to make a movement in the area of prayer, and we're going to decide now that we're going to go every single day. We're going to spend an hour in prayer. And you know what happens? It happens for a week, and then something happens, and we get disrupted. And before we know it, two weeks have gone by, and we haven't cared. So we, get, we go through a cycle of trying and stopping, trying and stopping, trying and stopping. So we're never, ever really consistent. My view on this matter is that you have to start off small, incrementally, Let it be a regular time. And remember, it takes at least six weeks to do anything before it becomes a habit. So you've got to determine in your mind if you really want to improve your prayer life that you're going to have to do whatever you're doing for six weeks. So if you decide, you know what? I'm weak in my prayer life. I want to start developing it more. So let me make an effort where I'm going to spend like If you can't do it every day, every other day, whatever. But whatever day you decide, and give a specific time, 20 minutes a day, every single day, 20 minutes in prayer, every single day, you gotta do that for six weeks. Then after it has become a habit, and you feel I need to increase this, then you increase 10 minutes. Uh, The point I'm trying to say to you is this, you, you get discouraged when you start something, and you have to stop, and you start and you stop, you start and you stop, and you never develop the habit. So my, my counsel to you is that whatever you're going to do, if you're serious about your prayer life, is to start off incrementally, but do it consistently for uh, six weeks. And then if you want to improve on that and add to it, do it. But don't ever say you're just going to start off with an hour. It's not going to happen every day. You're going to do for two weeks. Something's going to happen, and then you're going to get off track, and then you're going to ask yourself, What the use? But let me just say this. Nobody ever uh, develops and become a mature Christian in any area of the Christian life, without discipline. That's why Paul told Timothy, exercise yourself unto godliness. And uh, without uh, discipline in our lives, we're never, ever going to become godly. That's a reality. That's something we need to understand, and it requires effort on our part.
0: And one more question that has come in. Uh, Is it right to memorize Scripture?
1: Oh, I think it's lovely. As a matter of fact, i would be very honest with you. I memorized more scripture in my young, youth days than I do in my olden days, which is yeah. kind of, And I remember so much of what I memorized then. When the brain is, is sharp and uh, retentive, that's the time to memorize scripture. And may I add one other thing. When we were in our teens, in our church, we had a group of young men that were always competing to see who could memorize more of the Bible. So we would not memorize one verse or two verses, we memorize chapters. And that has a, was a great habit. And uh, I don't do as much memorization uh, currently uh, for a long time. But it is those that period of my life when I memorize so much scripture that I can remember so much at this point in time. The the other thing is that um, if you don't have scripture in your mind, you do not give the Holy Spirit the tool that he needs, which is called the sword of the spirit. He needs the word To bring conviction in one's life And that again is the importance Of memorizing scripture David said Thy word have I hid in my heart That I might not sin against thee So it's a preventative as well but substantially, uh I wish at my age I had spent more time memorizing scripture uh, I, I I mean I think every believer would probably tell you that they regret they did not memorize more, especially when you're young. It helps you so much in your old old and your old age. But yes, you should memorize scripture, and one thing that I used to do is uh, take a piece of card, maybe two inches by three inches, write the text. On the one side and the verse on the other side and you can put them in a with, a, with a, uh, um, a rubber band and you can be walking and flipping those cards just read it you don't even have to memorize something just read it again read it and turn it over read it read. It. you'll be surprised that you, you you wonder sometimes how in the world i, I knew that verse but that is a very, very good habit. So when you're in a line, you know, a long line at the bank or whatever it is, I still do that with, with words, by the way. I, I still do that with words. If you come to my home, you'll see that I've got about five or six packs of words with rubber bands. Every time I'm reading a book and I come across a word I don't know, with very few exceptions, I write that, verse, that word on one side and I get the definition on the other side. And I don't sit down and memorize the meaning of those th- th- those words. When I'm walking or even in the van, you'll find I have a set in, 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 in my compartment. I will be flipping those words. Just look at the words, and meaning, and you'd be surprised how it improves your vocabulary. But that would be a good thing for your uh, memorization. If you don't want to write out the verse, if you can get an old Bible that somebody has discarded, and there's so many, cut it out and stick it on one side onto the card and just put the verse on the on the outside. And you've got your verse there. You don't have to write it out if you don't have enough time to do it. But I think that will be a useful process to help you with memorization.
0: Pastor, a WhatsApp question that's come from Trinidad? Good night. Where did the devils come from, and how do they possess individuals? Well, there's only one devil. There are many demons. <clears throat> many demons.
1: So uh, uh, I know that even in the King James Version, it, it uses the word devils, but there's only one devil, that is Satan, and then you've got a demonic host. Well, the Bible tells us, uh, if you read, um, I think it's Isaiah 14, uh, that has to do with Satan rebelling against God in heaven. Remember, Satan was the anointed cherub. Uh, he was the one that guarded the the throne of God and then the Bible explains that he decided that uh, he wanted to be like God he wanted to replace God quite frankly and there are five eyes there I will be like the most high I will ascend up into the north whatever it is but you will find it there that that's the act of rebellion as a result of that attempt of rebellion he also was able to Mislead a treasonous uh, rebellion against God. And you read in the book of uh, Revelation, it says that one-third of the stars fell with Satan. And of course, if you read Revelation chapter 1, the stars are angels. So he was able to bring down with himself one-third of the angelic hosts who rebelled uh, with him against God, and they were thrown out of heaven. And currently the Bible says that they occupy the intermediary state between the third heaven And the atmospheric heaven, that's where uh, they currently occupy. But that's where demons come from. They're fallen angelic beings. And Seder is the mastermind behind them. But he's the one that led the rebellions. That's where we get devil
0: and demons. If you have a question, you can WhatsApp or text it to us at 268-782-1454. Nathan, there's another part about man to the question. How do they possess individuals? Oh,
1: okay. Yeah, look, demon possession uh, is uh, something that is still happening uh, today. It's real. Yeah, oh, it's very, very, very real. As a matter of fact, I think it's, I don't want to use the word impossible, but it's impossible for me to conceive of a person who does not believe that demon possession is possible because Mm -hmm. it is something that is taught in the Scriptures. You cannot read the Gospels without understanding the important Role that uh, in terms of demonic powers and uh, the the battles involved between demonic powers and and God and his and his uh, holy angels. I mean, you read the life of Christ, and he was again constantly casting out demons. The apostles was constantly casting out demons. It's a very real phenomenon. Uh, in terms of how it actually uh, people get possessed, uh, gen- well, can't say generally, but a lot of it has to do with transference. There's somebody in the family, especially involved with uh, people who practice idolatry and uh, practice those kind of things. Paul makes it very clear that behind idols are demons. So people who are involved with uh, the occult, involved with black magic, involved with uh, spiritism, involved with uh, necromancy, um, involved with palmistry. uh, anything to do with uh, that is that the Bible contradicts or the Bible uh, condemns. When you get involved in those kind of things, uh, it allows and opens a door into your life that you can become uh, demon possessed. And normally, people who are engaged in these activities, before they die, they die such terrible deaths with pain and anguish and fear that normally there are. T- virtuallyly promised that if they were to transfer and that means often laying their hands on people, and often it's done to a child when the child is very young, and the the child may not even know what has happened, but these things do happen, and that is what the other thing of course is the illegal drugs Any time you free up your mind where you're not consciously in control of your mind, you've opened the possibility of a door to your mind so that demonic powers. Uh, can enter you. And that's my greatest fear today with all this this use of drugs. Um, So I think that's another avenue that people who are involved in in, in, uh, illegal um, drug, et cetera, who talk about having a higher consciousness and and their minds going blank, I think they're open to demon possession. And then immorality. When you get involved in a lot of immorality, it opens a door into your life for uh, demonic powers to actually uh, possess. That's why you talk about unclean spirits. And that's because you no longer have a capacity to control your sexual drive. Uh, You become almost open to to, to that kind of a a power. Uh, And the other thing is uh, people who read get involved with reading certain type of books, uh, introduce people to this kind of thing, they begin to experiment with this whole matter. People use the Ouija Ouija board, for example. Uh, That opens a door. Anything to do with uh, the occult opens a door into the life of an individual.
0: You mentioned immorality, and that brought to my mind the verse where it says every other sin is uh, out of out the body, body, but this is Fornications, fornication. Uh, yeah, what, yeah. what is meant by that verse?
1: Well, I think uh, I mean a lot of different opinion about that, but I really think that it it um, it, it, it scars and sets things in motions in your body. Uh, Hormones, for example That once that is set loose Quite frankly It creates that craving So I think that once you get involved In sexual activity uh, this is why there is this drive to c- constantly go back and go back and go back because uh, your body now, quite frankly, becomes a prisoner to these hormones that stimulate this kind of interest within you. So I think that's what it But of course, if, uh, the other thing is that you know it brings these 25 STDs, which really helps to destroy the body. But I do feel that it, it affects the body in such a way that it creates the opportunity for renewed craving so that the body begins to become a slave to the passion of sexual desires.
0: We're going to, well, we have another question that has come in. Thank you for all the questions that are being sent in. When Jesus cast out the devils from the young men into the swine, and the swine fell into the sea, did the devils die? Or were they free to roam the ocean and embody any animal or human?
1: Well, again, we enter into the realm of speculation. We're limited to what the Bible reveals to us. We do know that from Scripture it is very, very clear, and also from experience of what people who've dealt with demons, that demons do seem to possess, want to possess the human body. Uh, We're not given details as to why. Um, My speculation, quite frankly, is that they envy man. Uh, remember that whatever man is going to have in the future, they once had, and I think that m- because man is a crown of creation, uh, quite frankly, I think this is part of the envy, and they want to corrupt the human race, and that's why they want to take possession of the body. Uh, that is pure speculation. We're not given any any specific reason, but we do know that they desire to be embodied. And uh, the reason for that embodiment, we're not absolutely sure of, but I think it's out of the envy that they have for man being God's uh, uh, premier creation and who will share in man in God's future glory. Um, so I think that is part of the reason. As far as the demons leaving the human body and our Lord cast some of the way into the again, they're trying to possess um, the body, uh, to, to want to materialize, as it were. Uh, if you read the book uh, Kongs in the Occult by uh, Dr. Koch, K O C H K U R C K I think it's K-O-R-C-H, but it, it's available, called Kongs in the Occult. He would give you many experiences of uh, dealing with people where animals were possessed as well. So this is something, a phenomenon that is very, very real, and it, it can happen, but... Um, in terms of the animals dying and the demons uh demons would not die uh they will only one day be in prison those that are allowed to be set free. Remember there's a set of demons that are kept in chains that the Bible says these are the ones who violated the the uh the boundaries that God has set between angelic beings and human beings, these fallen angels read uh, Genesis chapter six uh but the others that were allowed to be free. And they will have their freedom, and of course they're part of Satanic army in order to uh, tempt man and to destroy man, but they, they were not killed themselves, and no doubt they would have gone on to try to possess not just other animals but also try to possess other people as well
0: you're listening to the Caribbean radio lighthouse. The time on this Tuesday evening is seven fifty six we are going to jump back into the topic we were discussing the last two weeks, and if you have a question, go ahead and send it in, call in, and we will go down the path of your question, and then return back to this topic. The topic is providence of God, the providence of God, a very practical topic during this time of COVID, of so much confusion and uncertainty. Is God really in control? And two weeks ago, Pastor Murphy began talking through uh, what is meant by the providence of God. What kind of impact does this doctrine have? If you are interested in hearing his answers to these questions, you can go to the podcast. You can go to our website, www.radiolighthouse.org. Scroll down to the second large picture that you see. It's going to be a microphone right in the middle. There is a circle that says podcast. Click on that, and then you will see the latest episode of That's Truth podcast. Click on the link that says archive for That's Truth podcast, and then go to the last two episodes, and you will see an episode about uh, the providence of God. Last week... Uh, As we wrapped up the episode, Pastor, you were talking about seven areas of governance, and those included God's control over nature, over the animal creation, over human history, circumstances. What about God's control over the whole universe?
1: Well, there's several uh, things in the Bible that explains that God's control is not limited to any one particular aspect of uh, the world, he controls and manages everything, and the wisest possibility deals with the extent of his power. I think, um, let me perhaps ask you to read Psalm 103, verse 19 to 22. I think that particular uh, psalm explains the great extent God's rule over the entire universe. Psalm
0: 103?
1: Yeah, verse 19 to 22.
0: Those verses say, The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth all over all. Bless the Lord, ye his angels, that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word.
1: Yeah. They said, no, His kingdom ruleth over all, not okay. just limited. It's not a limited monarchy, as it were. Uh, this is complete control over the entire universe. And then another fascinating passage is Daniel chapter four, verse thirty-four and thirty-five.
0: Daniel four thirty-four and thirty-five reads as follows. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done?
1: I don't think there's a more profound statement of the absolute complete control of God that he does what he wants to do. Nobody can stop or thwart to frustrate his purpose because he is is an everlasting kingdom. And remember, there's a pagan giving witness to the fact that uh, this is God's sovereign control because he himself had encountered his, um, what God could do to a monarch when he was dethroned, uh, put out of society, lived like an animal for seven years in the wilderness in the forest, until he lifted up his voice and acknowledged that God was supreme. And then his sanity returned to him, and he was able to re, re, uh, re, be re-enthroned, and that's his witness and his testimony. And then one other verse, I think, is, is, is Ephesians one eleven.
0: The book of Ephesians, chapter 1 and verse number 11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, Having been predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will.
1: Again, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. In other words, what God has willed, what God has purposed will come to pass because every single thing uh, is headed in that direction. He's engineering and uh, guiding, directing everything towards his final end that he has predetermined will happen. So clearly... um, Uh, From those verses of Scripture, uh, there's no doubt whatsoever in terms of the testimony, witness of Scripture, that God has absolute control of the entire universe. There's no aspect of this universe that God cannot impose his will or cannot engineer and move and and, uh, direct things in the affairs of this life.
0: Pastor, a text message that's come in from Antigua. Good night. Could you please expound on Matthew twelve thirty-two and 33, where it says the Son of Man versus the Holy Ghost. And I'll read those verses. Matthew twelve thirty-two and 33 say, And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come verse 33 either make the tree good and his fruit good or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt for the tree is known by his fruit well in in the
1: first case the son of man is jesus christ and he is the one who god has provided salvation through so uh, his purpose was coming to forgive man so any sin against uh him Will be forgiven because the whole purpose was to forgive men their sin. The Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, which I prefer, um, is the instrument that brings conviction. And our Lord is issuing a warning there that the instrument of bringing people to faith is through the Holy Spirit using the conviction of the Word. When the Holy Spirit is grieved and he's insulted, and uh, like in the case where you have the people saying that Christ cast out works by Beelzebub, but in actual fact, he was performing this exorcism using uh, the Holy Spirit. Because remember that as a man, he lived as we should live, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and he never exercised his supernatural power in the interest of himself. So he's using the power of the Spirit to cast out these demons. These people are well aware, by the way, that no man spoke like this man. They're well aware that no man can do the things except we come from God. So he's very, very conscious that this is one sent by God. This is indeed the Messiah. He's fulfilled all the, the promises in the Bible in terms of the miracles that Isaiah talks about, in terms of virgin birth, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and in terms of his teaching. So this is not that they're not aware that this. But the problem is, how do you let go of your power? When you've had the control of people for so long, they think you're the the super people, and now they discover the true Messiah has come. It would mean that you have to renege on your position. It means that you have to give up your authority, your power. And if you read the, the, I think it's Matthew said that they crucified him, they betrayed him, or crucified him because of envy. And so... They are aware of who this one is, but they cannot come to bring themselves to the point to acknowledge that this is the Messiah. So what they're doing now is trying to bring a charge against him that he's doing his his, his miraculous powers through demonic powers. And he warns them, the instrument by which you get saved is the Holy Spirit. He's the agent that God uses to bring a person to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There's no salvation without conviction from the Holy Spirit, and he must use the word. But if the means that you are converted you are now uh, denying those means, and you're now perverting those means, you you won't be forgiven. And by the way, this is something that God has stated. This is not something man has stated. And that's what God says, a person who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit could not be forgiven in this life, nor in the life to come. In other words, he's completely damned. There's no possibility of any kind of redemption for a person like that, and that's because he's done insult to the very Spirit that's the one that brings conviction so he can be converted and his eyes can be opened. And the Lord warns us against that. So there's nothing—remember the Son of Man came to forgive sin. So any sin against him, he's willing to forgive. But the sin against the Holy Spirit, who is the agent whereby man is saved. Uh, hinders that person from being saved because the Holy Spirit is so grieved uh, that he no longer brings any conviction in that person's life. So the Bible warns about that. In terms of the tree uh, that is being used there is it's very, very, very simple. the tree either is changed and is a good tree, or it's not a change, it's a bad tree. But you can not be a good tree and a bad tree at the same time. And the, the Bible warns about that. You By your fruits, you're going to know them. So if you, you know a person's authentic character and, and um, nature by their lifestyle, when a person, say, for example, they're a Christian, and they're running around and chasing women, gambling, and uh, uh, carousing around, and dishonest at work, those people are not Christians. There are professed false believers. If a change has not taken place in a person's life, that person is not a safe person. No matter how much time he professed, no matter how much time he has prayed, there's no change in his life. There's no change in that person's life. That means it's still the same old fruit. When the fruit is changed, uh, and that tree that is good, was bad, becomes good. It produces good fruit. So that's what our Lord is trying to get, you know. There's something called easy believism that we have swallowed for a long period of time. That we tell people, come down the aisle, say a little prayer, and because you say a little prayer, you're saved. And there are many people who have done that who frankly know that they're not saved. And I think we've done a great disservice uh, and, and made people twice the child of hell because of that. We've got to tell people that the Spirit of God has to bring conviction in your life. There must be some kind of conviction, okay? It's not just the little prayer that saves you either. It's who you put your, your faith in. Prayer is a means, but it's not the prayer you say. It's the, the trust you put in the Lord Jesus Christ that's going to save you. So you can say a prayer, but if you don't trust Him, how are you going to be saved? The important thing is to put your faith and trust in Him, and, and the prayer is just the avenue of expressing that. Uh, so I think that um, the important thing here is that the, the good fruit, uh, a good tree will produce good fruit, a bad tree will produce bad fruit. That is very, very clear in Scripture. And that's why the Bible says we should be fruit inspectors. By your fruits, you should know them. So if you want to know if a person is a Christian or not a Christian, you're going to do one thing. You don't even have to hear what he says. Watch his life, see how he lives. And no matter how much he professes, no matter how much he says, if there's no evidence of real transformation in his life, mark it down. We are dealing with an unsafe person, irrespective of whatever profession he makes.
0: Pastor, we have a listener from Cashew Hill, Antigua, who says, Good night. It seems as if Paul knew who stopped him on the road to Damascus when he asked, Who art thou, Lord? Acts chapter nine verses one through five. What do you think, Pastor? And I'll just read those verses here to set the context. But wait, it
1: again that Paul knew what Paul didn't know. Yeah,
0: it seems as if Paul knew. Okay. who stopped him on okay. the road? Acts one, Acts nine, one through five. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughterings against the disciples of the Lord, went on to the high priest, and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues. That if he found any on of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus. Whom thou persecutest, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks.
1: Well, I am not too sure that uh, the the expression who art thou, Lord, would seem to me to indicate that Paul is trying to find out who is this one, the supreme authority that has brought this blinding light, knocked the proud Pharisee down on his knees, uh, while he's like a war horse trying to destroy the church. So he is not, in my judgment, he is not too sure who it is that has uh, intervened miraculously in this life. So he says, who art thou? Uh, I know for, for sure you've got to be some supreme being. You've got to be the Lord of the universe, but who art thou? And then he's, Jesus said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. This is when the blinders came off of Paul's eye. The moment our Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest, uh, is when he became aware that, wait a minute, you mean to tell me that all of this madness I've been done, doing to, to imprison believers, that Christ was really the Messiah, the one that was supposed to come? For the first time, he came to the realization that the Jews had crucified the Messiah, and that's when the scales fell off his eyes, and he fought, saw for the first time that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah, the promised one who had come. I think it's at that moment that he made this tremendous discovery that was the transformative uh, experience in his life that turned Paul from Saul into Paul so that he became a great apostle, etc., etc. But I don't think at the juncture when he asked that question that he was aware who it was until Jesus said, I am Jesus whom thou persecut us, uh, yes.
0: Pastor, we have Codrington on the line. Codrington, thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please, quickly.
2: Okay, uh, I will sign um, about two questions, meaning one, right? Last one. I'm gonna ask when you are finished um, answering two questions. Meaning one. Um, first time. This is uh, when Eve did have Cain and Abel, right? And Cain um, is the one that shoots through Abel. Okay. Yeah. Uh, they are the first two born man in the world. Yeah. Right. Yes. When Mary got Jesus Christ, if he come to save the world from this thing, or not? Uh,
1: well, I'm trying to figure out uh, the connection between the two, so I am not too sure uh where the connection is there. Uh You make a connection between Eve having Cain and Abel. And then you mentioned Mary uh, uh, producing Jesus. The point I would make to you, Codrington, is this, right? <laughs> Jesus Christ existed prior to coming to earth, before Abraham was I Am. He was God's son before he came to earth. He, he needed a human vessel that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, could come in. Mary became that human vessel. Mary, Mary is not the mother of God, okay? God does not have a mother. But Mary is the, uh, the mother of Jesus' human nature, so Jesus is both God and man in the flesh. So uh, Mary became the human instrument that uh, to provide the human part so that Christ became a man. But there are two. Remember that Jesus Christ is God and is man at the same time. And the whole reason for uh, Christ's coming was to forgive man, to pardon man, to redeem man, so that man could be forgiven, because he became the, the the great Lamb of God that would die for the sins of the world. So Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world to make salvation available to all. And Mary was just a human instrument of his human body, uh, and that's why uh, the Bible recognizes her part in willing to submit so that the Holy Spirit could produce in her uh, the seed uh, of of uh, the birth of Christ She was He was virgin born Through the instrumentality Of the Holy Spirit uh, Impregnating uh, Mary So that she became um, The mother of Jesus the, That is The human side of Jesus I don't know if that Answered your question
2: but, um, We don't know sin She's um, born Jesus We don't know sin right Well
1: Remember this That Mary was born in sin She said She called God her saviour so she recognized she was born with a sinful nature. All men are born, all human beings are born with a sinful nature. Mary was born with a sinful nature. But the Holy Spirit ensured that no sin was passed on to the man Jesus. He is the one that uh, supernaturally intervened to prevent sin from entering the nature of Christ. But Mary herself was a sinner. No question about that. She herself said that God was her savior. If God was not her savior, uh, she would never be a sinner. But the fact—only sinners need savior—and she said uh, uh, that God was her savior. So there's no such thing as Mary's immaculate conception that she was conceived without sin. There's no such thing as Mary was assuming to heaven that she, when she died she was taken directly to heaven and enthroned in heaven. There's no queen in heaven. The Bible is very, very clear. There's only a king, the Lord Jesus Christ, in heaven. And that's where the Catholic Church has done tremendous damage. To the faith of so many people who are depending on a Mary to help them. When in truth in fact Mary cannot help. The only hope we have today is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Without him, no, none of us would have any hope. Uh, with Mary, none of us will have hope, period. Because she can't help us. Only Jesus Christ can help us. He is the only mediator between God and man. One mediator, not two. There's only one mediator God that's found in the book of First uh, First Timothy. Uh, You'll find that there And uh, I hope Mr. Cognitant At some point in time The scales fall off your eyes And you begin to recognize Christ For who he is And put your entire faith And trust in Jesus Christ And uh, just remember that Mary Is not the one that's going to help you It is Christ If you've got Christ You've got the door If you've got Christ You've got the way If you've got Christ You've got the truth If you've got Christ uh, You've got the life If you don't have him And you have Mary You have nothing Because without him Nobody comes to the Father
2: just, okay, just two such and we're not going to come out of the right? Yeah. We have a um, mother that born, Cain and Gabriel, in sin, right? The first two men that born. Mary now have Jesus Christ, if she's sin and not, she couldn't be sinned. She have to be pure to endure, um to to born Jesus Christ. And after Jesus Christ born, now every man that followed Jesus Christ, a Christian. So she actually the one that won Jesus Christ and then when you wrote to Jesus Christ so for today right now every month from him to the day they, they became a Christian again. They
1: see Yes, son, Mr it's Mr Carnegie, you're living a delusional world. You're not living a biblical world view of what the Bible teaches. Mary is given no significance after the Gospels. You ever thought about that? You read, you, read the, you read the epistles. Find one place in any of the epistles where Mary is mentioned. Everything is about Christ. You are in Christ. You believe in Christ. You're saved in Christ. You're redeemed in Christ. You have eternal life in Christ. Not one single mention about Mary. Why well, do you think that is so? Because God, from the beginning, point. Look, if Mary was on planet Earth today, you know what she'll do? Mr. Coddington, this is the one. This is the one this is the one forget about me this is the one this is the one i am sure absolutely sure she was on planet earth today she'll point you to christ and say you put your trust in him he's the one i can't help you he can help you he is the lord of the universe he's the god of the universe he is a savior he's the one that can save you if you don't see that sir you will die in your sins you will perish and on i would grieve me That you'll be living in in a country like this where you've got uh, freedom of speech, you've got the radio broadcast, you've got an open Bible, and yet you hold on to a woman who can't even help you with not even to lift your finger, far less get you into heaven. It is very, very sad that the Catholic Church has misled people for so many years and they're going to be held accountable to God for so many people that they're damned because they put their faith and trust in a woman rather than put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's a sad, tragic story, but that's the situation today and uh, people need to open their eyes, get back to the Bible, follow the Bible, and forget the church, whether it's my church or another church, if it's not teaching the Bible, forget those churches. Get back to God's Word. That's the only hope you have in Jesus Christ and the only hope is God's Word. The Church is not the answer, it's not the final authority, the Word of God is the final authority. That's what you need to put your faith and trust in.
0: You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.19. We are glad that you are tuned in to That's Truth. It is a live, interactive call-in program. And thank you, Codrington, for your call. Thank you for those who have sent in your questions. We look forward to your further interaction throughout the evening. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question that has come in from Antigua. Good night. What is the sin unto death... If I'm correct, we aren't able, we aren't to pray for those who sin that way. Yeah.
1: Look, that's one of the great mysteries that people, um, one of the parts of the Bible have not enlightened us. But we do know one thing, several things, for example. We do know that the believer in the communion service, not showing proper respect in the way the communion is done, that the Bible says, because of this, some of you sleep. Some of you are sick So that is a sin unto death Quite frankly That if we violate the uh, the sacredness Of the communion service And we treat it with complete disrespect The Bible warns us Some of you sleep Some of you are sick Because of the manner in which You conduct yourself So we know that that's a sin Unto death um, So we, that that's one of the things That we're sure about The other thing that um, That I would say to you is that if a person repeatedly, um, the Bible says, um, hard is his heart, the Bible says suddenly to be cut off. That is a sin unto death. So a person who has repeatedly been Informed in scripture, enlightened in scripture, but continue to live a rebellious life and harden their heart. That comes to the point where uh, God says, You've had enough, and the Bible warns that person should be cut off. That is also sin unto death. In terms of other details, we don't know in any, uh, um, uh, we never given any specific. Sins uh, as far as that is concerned um, So I really don't have an answer to that one uh, And I don't think the Bible gives you an answer If you find it in the scripture I'd be glad if you share it with me But um, I think sometimes we ought to be aware There are times when you quit praying for certain people As a matter of fact I don't have it off my, off my, uh, my tongue right now But I can show you in the Old Testament Where the Lord told Israel uh, Don't pray for these people anymore just don't pray for them, right? As far as God is concerned, that was it. They've gone to the point where God says there's no point of no return, and God has just given them up. And so prayer was useless. No way to pray for them any longer because of the rebellion. So there are times in scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, when that is mentioned. You can take your concordance and check out that that, that, that expression, not to pray for these people anymore. You see, it's there. So I would say those are two sins. Um, stubborn rebellion, that is, a person becomes stiff-necked, and... Um, Hardened uh, that's the And then also the, I mentioned to you The abuse of the communion service The other thing is of course Is a person who lives In continuous sin Like sexual sin Remember the young man in, in, in uh, Corinthians chapter 6 Where he's living with his stepmother Chapter 5 uh, Living with his stepmother And the church rather than cast this young man Out of the church They're boasting how tolerant they are Now here's a young man living with his stepmother Sleeping with her Having, Paul says, "You have among you something that even the heathen found repulsive. How in the world you can tolerate that?" And then what does Paul says? Paul said, "Look, cast this young man out of the church, that his body might be destroyed. That's a sin unto death as well. Let God destroy his body, It's going to lead to death. So you've got a person who's living in morality in the church, continuously living in morality." That's a sin unto death. Don't pray for that person to keep on. You warned them. You speak to them. You did everything, and then they keep on doing the same thing. Let God deal with them, right? That's another sin that the Bible indicates leads to death. The body be destroyed because of this continuous living immorality. Uh, so those are three things I can mention, but again, there may be other sins that I'm not, I mean, the Bible doesn't talk about, um, but... Those are the three things that comes to mind immediately that lead to death in terms of a person. And I would caution believers to be very cautious in, in, in uh, dealing with people like that if they're not listening and not responding and wouldn't change, uh, turn them over to God and let God deal with them.
0: You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Do you have a question that you would like answered? Do you have a topic that you would like discussed in a future episode of That's Truth? Give us a call or send us a WhatsApp or text message, and we would be glad to hear your input. You can call us and be put live on the air by calling two six eight four six two seven four two zero. You want to WhatsApp or text us? Send it to two six eight seven eight two. One four five four. You can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook live video feed, and you can comment your questions or your thoughts or suggested topics right there on the comment section. They'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner. Pastor, we are going to pick up here and continue with the topic of the providence of God. You were talking about his control over the universe. Uh, I'll jump back to that in just a second. We have a WhatsApp question that has just come in from Antigua. Good evening. If Christianity is true, why are there so many discrepancies in the New Testament? And here's an example. Does Mark 16 truly end at verse 8? And who added or interpopulated the other 12? Also, Luke twenty two nineteen and twenty interpopulated. Look, the,
1: the the whole question here has to do with manuscripts, okay? And there are really um, three families of manuscripts. Right, you got the Text of Receptus, you got the Majority Text, and you got the Westcott and Hort Text. A lot of it has to do with um, which text is older. And quite frankly, the Texas Receptors, some of those texts that were used, Manuscript manuscripts were used, are not the oldest manuscripts. And that's where the debate comes in. They use the older manuscripts, they use the newer manuscripts. And that's the essence of the debate today. Um, because a lot of the... Um, data that's available today was not available in time in the King James Version. There are a lot of things, like take the Dead Sea, Dead sea Scrolls, for example, 1948 or 49. I mean, King James was translated in 1611, basically, in that period of time. So there are a lot of information has come up, a lot of documents that have come up that uh, that uh, are older than the manuscripts used in the in the Textus Receptus, and that's where the debate is, quite frankly, and that's why a lot of the modern translations will stop uh, uh, include the verses that go after verse eight in Matthew in Mark chapter sixteen, but they'll have a footnote at the bottom explaining to you that in some of the older manuscripts, this is not there so that's that's the debate and it's a, it's not a question of uh, if christianity is true i don't see where that there's no other ancient historical book you can you can you can you can um, we can debate on this you can bring anybody at all there's no other ancient historical book with as much manuscripts as the Bible, they have over five thousand New Testament manuscripts, not to of the Old Testament right now, uh, plus all different types. No other ancient historical book is as accurate and has as much uh, historical support and grammatical support and linguistic support as the Bible. If you can believe history, you can believe the Bible. Okay, uh, but the only the, the, the problem comes in there where, and they're trying to be very honest with you. No, the, the verses that come after uh, Mark chapter eight doesn't change any doctrine in the Bible. It's a question of whether or not, uh, when the the the, uh, the manuscript was done, that that was lost because of all the older manuscripts that that, that don't, don't show that that was added. Quite frankly, so to to, to ensure that. Um, uh, those who hold to the Texas Receptus, you include all of it. Those who hold to the West Heart Horde text, it is mentioned, it's also included, but it's also a footnote telling you that these verses do not appear in the oldest manuscript. They're being fair minded. They're not trying to mislead you or trying to pull the wool over your eye uh, or trying to push one set of... Man- because if they did, they could have cut it out at verse 8. They included it so that you can see that in the older manuscript, those verses do not appear in the older manuscripts. That's all they've done. They're doing what they can do fairly, and uh, I, I I don't know what else they could have done. But in terms of the veracity of Scripture and the evidence for Scripture, there's no other ancient historical book has got as much evidence as the Bible in terms of support and manuscripts, none none by comparison by far. So if you can believe in any kind of historic, like Taxidus or Herodotus or Josephus, you can believe the Bible. Uh, and if you can't believe in the Bible, you can't believe in history because there's more support for the Bible than there is for any ancient book in history. So... Uh, I just think it's being fear. I don't think it's a matter of um, that because they've included these verses, it's not a matter of truth. It's just that they're trying to say that you know, these, are, this is what, these are the manuscripts that God has preserved. And by the way, God could not have just preserved the text of Receptor and not preserved the other. He preserves all the manuscripts. So therefore, that is why that is given. And the debate only comes, and by the way, let me just say this. I think that um, those people who push the King James only Version I think they've done a great disservice I am a king james only person well not King I'm a King James person I use the Bible but to be honest with you I think they've done great disservice sometimes to the to the whole whole matter they've not been very fear there are some manuscripts where the word God for example is not in verse three but it's in verse four so they would put uh, he instead of but they didn't, They still put the God in verse 4 it's still there but it, it was not in the other part because it was either slip or the, the tra- remember a lot of these things were written there was no typewriter there was no electronic pen that could read things people sat down meticulously and copied every single word every dot in the Bible now you cannot copy a document I would challenge you I would give you a whole three years that you will either miss out a the or a of or comma. it's obvious Right, and that's the value of having other manuscripts, so you can compare them to see. Hey, he dropped this comma here; he should have put in this word here. He misspelled it. That's what the argument is about. It's not about doctrine or or, or issues, and that's why I think they've done a great disservice, uh, and has led to a lot of factions, a lot of divisions. And unnecessary name-calling, telling people to don't believe in the inspiration of the Bible, I just think it's on I think it's, it's very damaging. And in the long term, I think at the judgment seat of Christ, they will discover they've done great harm to the work of God all over the world. Because these are not dishonest people trying to hoodwink people. They're trying to be as honest as they can and just say this is what it is.
0: You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 830 Thank you for sending in your questions thus far. As we continue with the topic of the providence of God, Pastor, do you have any thoughts along the lines of God governing or influencing and directing the free action of humans?
1: Well, we said that God's in control of everything, and if He's in control of everything, He is in control of some decisions decisions that people make. Quite frankly, He can influence the decisions. Some or all? Well. I'll explain to okay. it uh, in better that there's ways that he influences it by not doing something, allowing okay. it to follow. There are times when he intervenes to limit what, the, what can happen. So to answer that question, everything's in control of God. But whether he, whether he directly controls or just withholds something, he's still in control. Because if he'd intervened, it could have gone in the direction. Because he restrained himself, it went in the direction he wanted it. Mm-hmm. So in that, but again, it's not that he's violating the human will. He's operating within the laws of human will. This is what we want to discuss. The mechanics of how this work and the process by how this work is, is not, not very, very clear in the Scripture. But uh, there are several illustrations that we show that God uh, actually controls and is involved in the free actions of, of men. For example, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 21, if you look there for just a moment, you remember um, when the Israelites were going to go out of Egypt, the Lord uh, told them that they will no, not go empty-handed. And uh, he made that promise in chapter 3, verse 21. If you could just read that.
0: Exodus three twenty-one says, And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty. Yeah.
1: Now look at chapter 12, verse 35 and 36.
0: Chapter 12, verse 35 and 36 says... And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians.
1: Again, not a promise was made, but this is a free will. This is not something he's not forcing the Egyptians to do it. Uh, They said he gave them favor. And uh, they were able to give them so that when they left, they left uh, Egypt not uh, empty-handed. But again, the Lord said I would show, I would somehow move the Egyptians to show you a favor. But when you read it in the passage, quite frankly, you see that the Egyptians gave to these people. It's not as though that they wrung their hand or whatever it is. Uh, look also at First uh, Samuel chapter twenty-four, verse uh, ten. This has to do with David and Saul. You remember when Saul was in pursuit of David and uh, Saul decides he's going to sleep and he goes into a cave? It just happens that when he goes into the cave, guess what? David and his men are already in the cave and David uh, can now smite Saul and become king. But what David does, he cuts off part of his the, the, uh, of his uh, the coat and uh, he let Saul's escape. But it's interesting what David and Saul said as a result of this
0: event. First Samuel chapter 24 verse 10. Behold this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave and some told me to kill you but I spared you. I said I will not put out my hand against my Lord for he is the Lord's anointed.
1: Notice that this is a free will act of Saul. He's tired, he's weary. He goes into the cave. David said, The Lord brought you into the cave and put you in my hand and I could have slain you. So notice a free act of, of Saul is perceived by David as God is actually the one who brought about this event. Look what Saul said in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 18. Same chapter and verse.
0: And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands.
1: Saul looks at it, and it's a free act of Saul. He's gone into the cave. He's not even thinking, but Saul really, you know what? The Lord is the one that made me go into that cave, quite frankly, and You it. Know. In other words, he, he's recognized that even in this free act, the Lord has something to deal because he would not have gone to that cave except the Lord wanted to go into that cave. Now, how that interacts, we don't know. But the fact is, this is a free will act of Saul, and uh, yet it is perceived both by David and Saul as God somehow intervening and creating the environment where David could have taken his life. Uh, So both of them are able to see God's hand even in this free will act of Saul in this passage. Uh, I think that's another good example. Uh, Other passages uh, make it very clear as well that God controls you. Look at um, Psalms 33, verse
0: 34. Verse 14 and 15, Psalm 33, verse 14 and 15. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all and observes all their deeds.
1: Again, the word fashion there means to shape. Uh, to form, so as far as David is concerned, even the action of man that comes out of his heart, uh, God has something to do with the process whereby that 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 heart and that thinking and uh, that sh- that shape of the thoughts is influenced by God. Look at Proverbs nineteen twenty one.
0: There are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord. That shall stand.
1: The word uh, devices their plans. We we got a lot of plans, but in actual fact, what God has planned will come to pass. It's spite to what plan you have in your mind. God's plan shall come to pass. Now, Was how that interact? Hello.
0: Nineteen twenty one.
1: Nineteen twenty one. Yeah, let me read that in another version. Oh, okay.
0: Many are the plans in the mind of a man. But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand.
1: Yeah, same thing. That you have all these ideas in your mind, you're going to do this, but God has a purpose. And in spite of your plans, God brings about his purpose. Now, how that interacts, we don't know. But clearly, he is saying that in spite of my plans, his will is going to be done, even if my plans are contrary to his will, because some aspect of it, he's in control. We're just saying, we we make plans. And as a matter of fact, he... Not knowing how it works, the mechanics of it, the clear plan is there that he brings about his purpose in spite of what I'm planning to do. Look also at uh, Ezra 7, verse 29. Ezra 7, verse 29.
0: 27, sorry. Ezra 7, verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautifully beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Yeah.
1: You remember when um, Ezra was going to rebuild the house of the Lord, basically the temple? Arthur Therxes, the Persian king, uh, provided the resources out of the national treasury to help rebuild uh, the house of the Lord. And Ezra is now looking back and saying, you know, the Lord put that in his heart. Remember there's a pagan king, but yet uh how then is a pagan king when he's going back gives a letter of commission to all the uh his Minions in that part of the world, look, whatever this guy wants, you just give him because you're going to build the house of the Lord. Ezra looked around and said that this is is God's hand. God has put this in the king's heart to move that man to give towards the rebuilding of the house. But again, uh, that is the free will of Ezra, I mean, of the king, but yet Ezra perceived it as God intervening and moving this man to give towards the project. So clearly, um, God is actively involved even in the decision-making of the private individuals. Look at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 10. This has to do with David and Shemiah.
0: Second Samuel 16, and verse 10 says, But the king said, What have I to do with you, you son of Zeruah, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David." Who then shall say, Why have you done this? So, yeah, yeah.
1: remember cursing there to pronounce judgment upon David and, and God's curse upon David. Not bad words, okay? And David is realizing now that he is going to be. Uh, put out to the throne because of the rebellion of his son, quite frankly. Uh, Joab is saying, you know, why don't you take this man's head off his body because he's cursing who's God's king? And David said, listen, it's uh, not in my, my domain to, to, to uh, silence this man and to, to maybe even kill him because he's cursing me. The Lord has allowed this to happen, quite frankly. And if he's cursing me, he could not have cursed me if the Lord did not allow. Uh, and, and here David is even saying that a person who was his enemy Uh, that God has a part even in this whole process. As I said, Nathan, these people were God-conscious. Everything in life had to do with some aspect of God's control. And that is why they were able to have this uh, this picture of God intervening and everything. You know, nothing could happen except God permitted. And sometimes God directly controlled the affairs of, of, of life. But the, the whole matter is that God is in sovereign control. He, in His providence, He rules everything according to His purpose. And these Bible uh, people recognize that. One last verse, second, sorry, Acts 2.23.
0: Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men.
1: Again, every person that crucified Christ that they thought they were... Ending the story And uh, solving the problem But notice According to God's Foreknowledge and predetermined purpose Is what uh, they, they, So whatever they were doing God had orchestrated Quite frankly That this would be accomplished Not that he made them do it by, by forcing their will But knowing the laws By which the human will operates He was able to guide So that even though They're doing evil God brings about good Through the crucifixion the same thing with Joseph you it for evil, but God meant for good. Yeah. Right? Same kind of concept, but he's in control of uh, the entire universe. He's control of nature, control of animals, control of history, control of uh, what acts we call accidental acts, but he's also control of uh, guiding uh, human decisions on a private matter.
0: We have a WhatsApp question that's come in from Anguilla. Thank you the, to the individual who sent it in. Good evening, gentlemen. Pastor, when a person dies in Christ... Does the person go directly to heaven? And when a person dies not in Christ, do they go directly to hell? Please give me scriptures to back up your answer.
1: Well, I, can, I can't I can give the scripture off the hand, but I hope we can look up for it again. Not when a person dies, the Bible says absent for the body is present for the Lord. That's in Corinthians. Paul says in Philippians, uh, I desire to depart. And go to be with the Lord Which is far better Than to remain with you But to remain with you Is necessary So in Paul's thinking When he departs He's going directly to the Lord You find that in Philippians uh, I think it's chapter 1 And the other one is found I know in uh, Corinthians So those are two passages That uh, talk about the believer The unbeliever uh, So far as where he goes We know he doesn't go To be with the Lord So where does he go? The only thing we're left to Is that he goes to Hades and remember, in um, Luke chapter sixteen, when you've got the unsafe person dying and the safe person dying, Lazarus and the the, the rich man, etc., one goes to a place of comfort called paradise, uh, which is Abraham's bosom, and one goes to be a section called Hades, where he's tormented. Uh, um, we know that before Christ was resurrected and Christ had died. Clearly, it seems as though this part, the part, you had two parts: one for the saved and one for the unsaved. The saved person was called Abraham's bosom; the unsaved person was called Hades proper. We know that now that Christ has uh, died and resurrected, we are told in Ephesians that He led captive captive. That is interpreted mean that He took all the saints to be with Him, uh, etc. So they're now with Him, and those who die no longer go to Hades; they go to be with the Lord. So Hades re- Hades remained the part where the unsaved man remains. And just like the rich man was tormented, those who die outside of Jesus Christ, that's exactly where to go. But Hades is not Gehenna. Gehenna is going to be, remember in the uh, book of Revelation chapter 20, it said death and Hades gave up the dead. In Revelation chapter twenty, mm, yeah. and then they were judged out of this book, and who was not found was cast in the lake of fire. That's Gehenna proper. So Hades is the intermediate period, where uh, stage where an unsafe person goes, but ultimately uh, the grave and uh, Hades is going to give up the dead in Revelation chapter twenty, and then they're going to be judged and cast into into Gehenna. So that's why Hades is not Gehenna, but when an unsafe person dies, that's where he goes. Now the believer goes to be with the Lord. Because after Christ's resurrection, all the saints now go to be with Him. I don't know if that answers your question. Uh, I can give you the verses, but I'm speaking off the cap of my head. I don't remember the verses directly, but I know in Philippians you'll find that uh, Paul talks to departing going to be with the Lord, and in Corinthians he talks about absolute body present with the Lord. I know that for sure. Uh, the other only part that I think may be a little bit speculative because we don't have any other information is uh, Luke chapter 16, we're we'll left with that compartment. Where the unsaved person was tormented, called Hades, that is where the unsaved man still goes. Because only the believer goes to be with the Lord.
0: Pastor, how would you respond to an individual who says the unsaved person is just annihilated?
1: Well, all I would say to people is that read Luke chapter sixteen. You you, you is either the integrity of Christ is on this, uh, um, You're either querying that, uh, you're either denying. Biblical truth So I think When a person Makes that kind of a statement It ha- it comes down To the the integrity of Christ Whether you believe What Christ teaches or not Now even if you think That that was a parable A parable teaches a truth What the parable teaches there That the unsaved man Is tormented And the, the believer Is comforted That's the truth Now whether you accept That there's a little place Of uh, Hades or not Is immaterial The fact is That it's teaching That you go one or two places So And the other thing is that The same word That is translated uh, eternal punishment is the same word as eternal life. So I don't know how you can make them mean different things. If eternal life uh, means that you live forever, eternal punishment means that you punish forever. It can't mean two different things altogether. And our Lord warns, uh, uh, He said, where the worm dieth not. He taught that uh, in Revelations when you find that the Antichrist is cast into the lake of fire before um, the 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 cast into into Gehenna. We find that after a thousand years we are told that uh they cast in the liquor where the beasts and the false prophets are, not where they were. So after a thousand they're still there. So I don't know how, by what system of logic you can uh, talk about annihilation. And remember, the beast and the false prophet are human beings. They're not, they're not, uh, right. you know, so they're still there after, oh, after a thousand years. Not that where they were, but where they are in the Greek language. So I think the logic of Scripture is so clear on this matter that um, I think the person who tries to say otherwise, the onus is on him to uh, discount Scripture. And, I, and and by the way I, I might, might say one last thing on this matter Nathan most of this kind of teachable about annihilation cetera, comes out of the Old Testament especially the book of Ecclesiastes and again I remind people that every book has a background to it and you've got to understand the theme and what the, the subject is all about Solomon's writing Ecclesiastes from the view of a man under the sun Solomon's faith had gone in the eclipse and he's writing to you out of his experience while he was in this f- eclipse of faith uh, and 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 uh, so he's just giving you how he viewed life as a man under the sun, basically a, a human being looking at life uh, on uh, without any kind of divine perspective, etc. And uh, so when you read some of those things in Solomon, is a man who's become disillusioned, just tells you what what it, what it But so I think that helps you to understand where a lot of this false teaching comes from, and they, they have not been willing to embrace the biblical concept of progressive revelation no Bible doctrine is settled in the Old Testament none they're all settled in the New Testament because you've got more light in the New Testament I cannot think of any doctrine that we can think about that is hinted in the Old Testament that has a completed answer in the Old Testament it's always brought the fullness of light in the New Testament and that's where you're going to understand the idea of progressive revelation I mentioned before Nathan another the Trinity the Trinity is hinted no question from the book of Genesis let us make man in our image and God made man in his image Uh, A plural noun, singular verb, quite frankly, they hinted there, right? But you never see it fully develop until you come to the New Testament, and that's how God progressively unfolds His truth to humankind so we understand uh, more clearly what this doctrine is all about.
0: As we wrap up this episode of the providence of God in the last 10 minutes or so, Pastor, you've been teaching, and you claim that God is in ultimate control Of all that happens, then how do you reconcile that, his providential control? How does it relate to man's sinful act?
1: Well, look, there are some people who feel that if God has decreed uh, final events, uh, pray is superfluous because your your prayer can't change anything because, uh, again, uh, that's an extreme position and it ignores. Other aspects of biblical teaching that uh, our Lord Himself encouraged people to prayer. Uh, and I, what God has done really is that in His foreknowledge, He has taken this interplay of His sovereignty and man's responsibility into the whole process of what would work out. I mean, He saw everything, how it would work out. So I don't think that um, if God tells us to prayer. And if in the Scriptures it is very, very clear that prayer changes things and prayer brings about results, and even our Lord Himself uh, t- told us that men ought to pray not to faint, and use several other biblical examples of how importunate prayer, that is incessant prayer, not giving up, and keep asking and keep asking, that it finally brings some kind of an answer, um, that is not contradictory to what the Bible teaches on these matters. Um, So God, uh, in His sovereignty, has established that He will respond to people who have a prayer of faith. That is a given. That If we pray, we can change things. The facts are, quite frankly, that God does some things only in answer to prayer. I repeat that. He does certain things only in answer to prayer, and that's why uh, we need to pray. The other thing is that God also does some things without any prayer whatsoever. Uh, that's a reality. And there are some times when God does things in spite of our prayer. Uh, because the Apostle Paul, for example, prayed and never got that prayer answered. God said, you know, Paul said, you know, he wants the thorn removed. God said, it's not going to remove the thorn. So the reality is that prayer is God asks us to pray, and God has um, repeatedly given us directions on, on how to, how to pray. And uh, He has decided to act on the basis of our prayer. So we can't uh, say because of God's sovereignty and God's providence, He took uh, man's responsibility of prayer, and He has already taken that and factored that into what His plan would be, because of His foreknowledge uh, uh, and so on. So I don't think it's a contradictory. It just is that God operates uh, according to prayer. God sometimes goes contrary to what our prayer. It has to do with our prayers within God's will. But uh, there's no contradiction between His His providence and prayers. My prayer is part of His providence. He's taking that into consideration as a result of you doing certain things and praying to me. I I will respond in a certain way. All that was factored in uh, from eternity because of His foreknowledge.
0: So I guess to develop that a little bit further, uh, you were talking about how God's providential control relates to prayer. But if you have any other comments on that, and then. Why is there even a need to pray if God knows what's going to happen and God's in control?
1: Again, God knows everything, but what God knows, He's already taken to consideration. Uh, he knows what we would do as well. We uh, enter be into, into a realm of, of mystery and speculation as well, as far as that is concerned. But the, re- the reality is that, take, take the whole matter of salvation again. We know that God knows who's going to be saved. But we know that God in His sovereignty decided to save those who put their faith and trust in Christ. How that ultimately works, we're not, sh- we're not sure. But we cannot in any way um, contradict one with the other. We've got to understand that these are two truths that are taught in the Scriptures. The same thing, God is sovereign, God is controlled, God in His providence, He overrules everything in the interest of His final purpose. But He has incorporated into that itself this ministry of prayer. And He has told us that if we would pray and ask, we would receive and uh, we can get Results as a result of our prayer that has been incorporated into His divine plan. His ultimate purpose will work out, uh, but that doesn't mean that He cannot intervene. Let me use an illustration. Remember, He sent uh, uh, Jonah to Nineveh. Right, forty days. What He said, Nineveh will be destroyed. Forty days. So God has already determined. Within 40 days, you're destroyed. The only thing that can avert this destruction is what? Repentance. The repentance and the fasting and so on. The people repented, and guess what? It took another 100 years before God destroyed uh, Nineveh. But again, it was the people's submission to God's authority that averted the tragedy within the, four, the, the uh, 40-day period. I think similarly things happens with prayer god has determined certain things will happen but he has said if we pray we can we can be in a sense we can intervene it's still going to happen but our prayer is able to effect some change that could actually avert this for example i think take america for example to be honest with you i think that uh if america would ever come to the point of repentance and get back to god i think its destruction would be averted and I don't know for how much longer. I think if it continues down this path, its destruction is absolutely certain. The only thing that can save America right now, in my judgment, is a repentance. General repentance and revival. I think if that were to happen, God could... With- Remember, in I'll go back to Sodom and Gomorrah, when Abraham prayed, if there'd be 30 there, if there be 40, if God said, if it, you know, I would not do it. And that's the same type of scenario I see when it comes to this whole matter of prayer.
0: I'm thinking of the king, I don't remember the king's name right off, but he was told he was going to die, and he pled with Yes, God. and he
1: got an the next, it, 40 years or 30 years? Yeah, I don't remember yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're exactly right about that. And the Lord told him, uh, uh, fix up your house, quite frankly, you're yeah. going to die, and he... He moaned and was sad and repentant, and God said, I'll extend your life. I think it's 20 or 30 years, I remember, but it's in the Old Testament. That's an example, again, that uh, our repentance, our prayer, God responds. It still means you're going to die, quite frankly, but it can avert the, the period of of, of, uh, of when you're going to die, quite frankly. These are things that the Bible makes clear about. How do you, this interaction works and what are the mechanics of it. We would like to get into the mystery, but we can't. So all we can do is in obedience to God, do what God says, and uh, believe His promises that prayer changes things, and we can get answers to our prayers.
0: I don't know if there's a specific answer to this question, but what would you say are the ends towards which God's providence is directed? Or maybe another way of asking that would be, what is He trying to accomplish by by His providence?
1: Well, ultimately, God's... uh, and God's purpose is to glorify himself, okay. uh, to put his character and his and uh, His whole um, being on display. So I think everything that is done, uh, everything that works out on planet Earth is actually ultimately for God's glory. So I think that's a given. But there are other subsidiary purposes that God has in mind. For example, there's no question whatsoever that God governs this world in the interests of the happiness and the well-being of his creatures. Um, I think that can be shown from Scripture that God is concerned about his creatures and their well-being. If we had time, maybe we could look at Acts chapter 14, verse 17.
0: The book of Acts, chapter 14, and verse number 17 reads as follows. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruit seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Of
1: course, he's talking to the simple people at Lystra who are idolaters. His point there is that uh God is ruling this universe and he's taking care of his people by uh, taking care of his creatures by, by um giving them food, etc. So it has to do with their well-being and the, the, his kindness to her. Matthew 5.45 again, our Lord made a statement similar that part of God's purpose uh, is actually taking care of his his, 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 uh, his
0: creatures. Matthew 5.45 says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust.
1: So clearly, part of his purpose is is providing and caring for those generally. The other thing that I would say, uh, Nathan, is that another substantive purpose, remember the ultimate purpose is God's glory. So not only uh, showing goodness and uh, concern about the well-being of his creation, but also I think God is concerned about the, what I call the mental and the moral development of his creatures. And this is clearly seen in the way that he exercises his discipline when people do wrong, his dealings with Israel, uh, bringing them from um, um, idolatry to faith, uh, giving of his laws and giving instructions, quite frankly. And it's also seen in how he has used the church in the world today. Uh, how for example, how the church has been used to uplift women, elevating women to a position I mean you go any place where the church has not gone and where Christianity has not gone and you'll find that women are in the most demeaning positions whatsoever but by treating women on a level of equality of being in the image of God that has helped to elevate women to a certain extent what about the erection of hospitals and schools and universal education all of this is part of God's uh, helping man in terms of his development in terms of his moral development as well Uh, and then the other thing, uh, Nathan, as well, is that <clears throat> God also, um, in His providence, is concerned about the salvation of man. So it's not just about His glory; uh, His salvation of humanity is one of His great concerns. And you find that uh, throughout Scripture, it was so uh, with Israel. With God would use Israel as a nation to reach other nations. And for the same purpose, today he's concerned about the world, and therefore he uses the church as a means of bringing people to salvation. So when you look at it, his ultimate purpose is glory, but there are other intermediary purposes that he have. The salvation of man, the care of his people, and care of humanity generally, and also the moral and spiritual development. Those are four main areas, I think, that we could uh, we can talk about.
0: What are some of the means or the ways that God uses in the exercise of his providence?
1: Well, there's several things that we can talk about. Uh, First of all, the laws of nature um, are there to help guide creation according to God's plan. There's also the internal law within the human being, the the conscience. I mean, imagine if a man didn't have a conscience and didn't have some way to control the extent to which you can do wrong. But again, that is part of it. Then the, the, uh, the back of his word. He uses his word as well as a means of conversion as well as moral development of people as well. And of course, his Holy Spirit, which is the restraining power on planet Earth today.
0: In the last 20 seconds, Pastor, are you convinced in your heart of hearts that God is in control? of the world in 2021, COVID and all. I have no doubt in my
1: mind about that. And I wish believers would come to that understanding because it will give you a great peace, a great calm, a great assurance, and above all, a great sense of security.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of That's Truth. Be sure that you join us next week for another exciting episode. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM, If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM, or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.